Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen from Arcadian Court in downtown Toronto. Welcome to the Empire Club of Canada. For those of you just joining us through either our webcast or podcast, welcome to the meeting. Today, we present the annual investment outlook, making money in the global markets in 2019. And one of the traditions of the Empire Club is that uh, we, the Empire Club makes very long speeches, except at the Outlook Dinner, because we have such great, intense guests here today that we want to listen to them. We live in a very interesting time in an erratic U.S. political environment that has fostered a more protectionist attitude amongst trading partners around the world, in an environment where interest rates are rising and where GDP growth is increasingly dependent, at least in part, upon consumers having affordable uh, access to borrowing. Today's event could not be more timely. The more uncertain the future is, the more it is a benefit to be prepared for it. As Warren Buffett has said, quote, it's only when the tide goes out that you discover who's been swimming naked. And because here at the Empire Club, we only want you to skinny dip, if it's your own choice, and not, obviously, in any matters of your investments, we have brought the great speakers here to prepare you for the tides ahead. We are lucky to have Pierre, David, and Gianni, who are brave enough to bring their crystal balls for all of you. I'm going to quote David's speech from last year of all the things. No, I am not. So, happy new year. Let's get started. First, I'm going to introduce uh, our first speaker, who's the strategist for UBS Bank, Canada's Wealth Management and Global Asset Management Group on Canadian Equity Strategies and Asset Allocation. As chair of the Canadian Assets Mixed Committee, he has responsibility for top-down macro inputs to UBS's investment management process. Previously, he was head of UBS's Bank Canadian Equities and was, was responsible for research and portfolio construction activity in the Canadian market. In this role, he was the lead portfolio manager for large cap portfolios. Pierre holds a BAA from the University of Montreal and an MBA with a specialty in finance from McGill University. Please welcome to the stage the executive director and senior investment strategist for Canadian equities at UBS Bank Canada, Pierre Wimet. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Well, thank you, Mr. President, uh, board members, distinguished guests, and ladies and gentlemen. Clearly a pleasure for me to be here today to address an organization that's been around since 1903 and obviously has, has had quite an impact on the community down through those years. So it's a, definitely a pleasure for not only for myself, but for UBS as well to be here. So without further ado, jumping into it, um, let me just get the mechanics of this going in the right direction. Okay, great. So, where are we headed to into 2019? Obviously, we're coming off to half decent year as far as global economic growth. You couldn't tell by the markets, obviously. Earnings were up and the markets were down. I mean, that's not typical, but it does happen from time to time. Uh, major revision downwards in terms of valuations. Uh, hopefully, the worst of that is behind us, and I think it is in general. Um, we think the global economy will slow this year. Uh, we have it down at 3.6%. Some have it a little bit lower than that, 3.5%, 3.4%. Uh, the main culprits, of course, will be the U.S., which is slowing, uh, and that was to be expected with a roll-off of tax reform in the U.S., but also China. China is slowing appreciably. 
The official numbers will probably still come in around 6, 6.2%. But uh, unofficially, the Chinese economy is slowing a lot more than that. If you look at rail freight volumes, uh, you look at airline passengers, you look at, um, you look at car sales, you look at uh, container traffic in the ports, the hard data is actually slowing, maybe not appreciably more, but it is slowing more than the official data which in effect is probably a good thing, particularly in this day and age with trade negotiations going on with the US, so it could force them to the table and to be more realistic in terms of their expectations. Uh, central banks are, um, have been part of the problem as well, particularly towards the, year, the, the end of 2018 in terms of what they've been doing, and particularly in the US, but also in terms of um, peeling down their balance sheets. And the Federal Reserve in the US has been quite active with respect to that. As you can see by this chart, since 2017, the banks have been shrinking their balance sheet with essentially draining liquidity out of the system. Uh, we think that'll taper off somewhat in 2019, flatten out towards the, towards the second half of the year. And maybe even the Federal Reserve is talking to a certain extent maybe of uh, stopping some of the quantitative tightening that we've been witnessing through, uh, through the last few years. There is an upcoming policy shift, uh, particularly now that the U.S. economy is slowing. And I think you'll see in the first quarter in particular an appreciable slowing in the U.S. economy. Um, the Federal Reserve is already hinting at maybe some form of a pause, although they're still officially talking about rate increases next year. But there are certain members of the FOMC now that are hinting that possibly they, uh, they might pause at the next upcoming FOMC. So we're probably looking, uh, the market is still expecting probably two rate hikes this year. We'd factored in three rate hikes. We're starting to peel back on that expectation. And I think the market now is looking more at one rate hike and maybe a lengthy pause at some point in time, which should be quite positive for the markets in general, because that's one thing that the markets were worried about towards the end of 2018 is the risk of a policy error. Uh, as far as Europe is concerned, uh, sovereign funding is actually kind of flattening out. So we don't see many pressures there as far as the uh, sovereign funding is situations concerned in Europe. European rates, the other thing also is that monetary policy in Europe is likely to shift as well. Um, they've moved away from quantitative easing. Uh, right now they're maintaining their balance sheets. We think that rates in Europe will start rising sometimes towards the end of 2019. If that's coupled with a pause in the U.S., then we could start to see a shrinking, uh, narrowing of the spreads between European interest rates and U.S. interest rates which has been kind of the, uh, the fixation of the markets for the last three or four years as well. So the widening spreads between U.S. and the rest of the world have been basically what's been driving the trade on the U.S. dollar. So we think that that will, in 2019, that will slow to a certain extent. Whether it leads to a decline in the U.S. dollar is debatable, but clearly the movement on currency markets will be less dramatic going forward than they have been in the past. And the one-way trade on the U.S. dollar is going to start to abate as well. The curve inversion, which everyone is worrying about, got down to as low as 20 or 25 basis points. This is the difference between the three-month and the 10-year bond rate. Uh, right now, it's around close to 30 basis points. Most of that actually happened because of a significant rally in the long end of the market because of a significant, position, uh, significant short position on long bonds. We don't expect a recession in 2019. The probability of a recession is still relatively low, as you can see by this chart. Uh, this is combining a whole bunch of indicators, uh, the PMI indices and other forward indicators. So the probability of a recession is still relatively low. So the concern of the market about a recession is somewhat overblown. Uh, and we think that uh, what we're seeing right now 
kind of the, the return markets to more a sanguine type of expectation. I think it will be the norm for the, for the next year. Um, further signs that the cycle is still intact, uh, you look at investment spending in general, it's still relatively low to where it's been in the past. Uh, also, you look at temporary employment, also that tends to peak way ahead of a recession as well, and it's still rising. Uh, there, the risks of overheating have actually abated to a large extent. In the middle of last year, we were worried about overheating in the U.S. and the potential for higher inflation, and of course, a more aggressive Fed in the U.S. Uh, that has abated significantly, and as we go through 2019, we'll also see a reaction on the Fed from that perspective, which means that uh, inflation is slowing. On a global basis, inflation is slowing. Uh, the U.S. is likely to slow to... Uh, Somewhere below 2%, maybe 1.6, 1.7%. Uh, the Eurozone is going to slow. China as well, which uh, that could be a double-edged sword. China inflation um, with a slowing economy means that nominal growth in China will be slowing. Uh, the rest of the world could accelerate somewhat, but generally speaking, the major economies, the major economic blocks will see a little bit lower inflation, which in essence is not bad. So we return to maybe a type of environment that we've, we've known over the last three or four years as opposed to last year, something that is uh, more akin to progressive, slow growth, with inflation being under control, with monetary policy being, uh, being more, continuing to be supportive. U.S. inflation remains under control, as you can see by this chart. This is the core PCE. It's actually decelerated lately. Um, central banks will react to that. Uh, the Fed is expected to raise rates, but as we see, as we expect, it's probably the, 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 the Fed will probably be a little bit slower in raising rates as we go forward. As far as the Bank of Canada is concerned, uh, there was talk towards the third quarter, the latter part of the third quarter in Canada, that the Bank of Canada could move aggressively to raise rates, which is, was kind of a conundrum for us. And uh, we don't, it was tough to explain in many respects because their outlook on the economy really hadn't changed, but they become a lot more aggressive in terms of their uh, telegraphing future rate increases. That is abated significantly. Uh, right now, we don't think the Bank of Canada is likely to raise rates at least until the spring, but in quite honestly, in looking at the monetary policy re report that came out yesterday, in all likelihood, they won't raise rates until the fall at the earliest. They're expecting a weak fourth quarter and an even weaker first quarter in 2019. So the Bank of Canada is probably going to stay in neutral for, for, the, you know, for the foreseeable future the, and the bulk of 2019. Um, this is a worrisome trend in the U.S., but it is combined with other factors as well that, in essence, make it, to a certain extent, it's, it's a, uh, something that had to happen. Uh, in the U.S., the, of course, uh, tax reform has led to uh, amplification of the deficit. Um, tax reform, in essence, was, uh, was a blessing, and it will help also in terms of the trade deficit in the U.S., because it's going to reestablish the level playing field as far as corporate taxes, with the U.S. relative to the rest of the world, which eventually should attract capital, should attract investment into the U.S., and over the longer term also will promote job creation production in the U.S. and should address the trade deficit over the longer term. So it is almost a passage oblige, as we say in French. They had to go in that direction. Um, unfortunately, it's had a, quite an impact in terms of the, uh, the current fiscal deficit, and this is worrisome. So we have in the U.S. these twin deficits, which uh, the trade deficit, of course, and the fiscal deficit, which we think is, should, be, should be weighing on the U.S. dollar considerably, even if rate spreads are still very positive um, in the U.S. relative to the rest of the world. But that should abate as we go through 2019. Um, I was alluding to the very short, very uh, substantial short position on long bonds, which as that reversed, 
uh, obviously had quite an impact, obviously, on interest rates and did uh, kind of shift the yield curve as well and created some of the angst that we saw in the market towards the end of the year. So we went from, on U.S. equities, from a slightly overvalued situation to probably somewhere under normal value right now. Um, so there was an appreciable down, downtick in terms of valuations, and that was, uh, that was basically the episode, uh, the, the angst and the, the, the fear episode that we lived through until the fourth quarter. High yield spreads have widened as well. This is an area of concern for the markets. A lot of that also has to do with what's happened in the energy area with the drop-off in energy prices. We've seen, uh, particularly in the energy area, we've seen the yield spreads widen considerably, and that, that has had quite an impact also on high yield in general. Somewhat similar to what we had in 2016. You might remember when there was a growth scare, oil prices declined to below $30 a barrel. The current episode that we went through is somewhat similar to that, and it's had an impact on high yield spreads. Um, when you look at default rates, are still relatively low, and our expectation is that they will remain relatively low for the forecast period. Uh, we're expecting lower earnings next year in the U.S. The rate of growth we're looking at is 4%. The consensus is at 6.7%. So we're not looking for earnings to go down. And when we look at valuations on the S&P or the Canadian market or other markets, most of those markets are discounting a drop in earnings in 2019, which we think is, is uh, totally unreasonable. So we think the earnings could be up by 4%. The economy in the U.S. is going to probably grow up around 2% with inflation at 2%, so which means that nominal growth should be around 4%. That's a good proxy for revenues. So at least revenues would be up by something like 4%. That should drive probably earnings higher than 4%, which is our expectation. So we're being relatively conservative, and even at that basis, the S&P is trading at around 15 times earnings. The Canadian market is a little bit cheaper, around 14 times earnings, but of course the variability in Canadian earnings is a lot higher, but there's a large component of the Canadian market that does not, that not trade over earnings. It trades over cash flow, particularly the energy area. So it's somewhat misleading to look at PEs in Canada from that perspective. Um, you look at the world, the MSCI world country, 12-month forward PE is below historical averages, so there is value in global equities as well. Emerging markets are even cheaper than the, than the developed market equities as well. And they remain attractive also relative to bonds. Uh, if you look at the, the earnings yield on the S&P is north of 6%, on the Canadian market is around 7%. Uh, bond yields are anywhere between 50 basis points in Germany and 2.7% in the U.S. So on a relative value basis, equities are still quite attractive. Um, this is the thing we look at, the misery index. Uh, right now with the current multiples in the PE, um, the misery index is a combination of the, uh, the unemployment rate plus the inflation rate. Assuming the unemployment rate really doesn't go much lower, let's say it stays where it is right now in the U.S., uh, at current multiples, um, it, it, the misery index is measuring something in the neighborhood of, of um, 6 to 6.5% inflation going forward, which is totally unrealistic. So it's another way of looking at valuations. Um, typically, this level of misery index that we have right now in the U.S., should drive multiples in the area of 19 to 20 times. Now, we're not saying that the market's going to go at those levels of valuation, but clearly where we are right now is severely discounting, uh, and it's, it's overreacting to some of the negative news we have over the short term. This is the major issue as far as trade is concerned. I, I could spend a whole half hour talking about that. Right now, the Chinese and the Americans are negotiating. Our expectation is that there will be a deal by March 1st, uh, there's a national, Chinese National Congress with the Communist Party on March 5th. They want a deal to be signed by then. 
It'll be not comprehensive, but it'll cover enough issues that'll be enough to satisfy both sides in this debate, particularly on the U.S. Um, so the U.S. administration will be able to claim some merit margin of victory. There'll be some, some backing off on the tariffs. There'll be some backing off also in terms of U.S. access into the Chinese market as well. Uh, as far as intellectual property um, and things of that nature, that, those are going to be ongoing issues. I think those will be longer in terms of getting resolved, but I think we'll see a lot of progress uh, over the next few months as far as the, the China-U.S. trade negotiations which are going on right now. And of course, with the slowing in the Chinese economy, there is pressure right now on Chinese authorities to come up with some kind of negotiated settlement. Um, I'll skip a few charts because I'm sure I'm taking too much time here. Uh, emerging markets are attractive. They are, however, tied to the U.S. dollar. Now, so the drop in emerging markets largely attributable to the, the trend in the U.S. dollar. I think that, is, uh, that should be behind us. And as the U.S. dollar stabilizes on a trade-weighted basis or maybe slightly depreciates, there could be an opportunity in emerging markets. We're extremely, extremely undervalued right now. Uh, we think uh, oil prices will stabilize. I won't talk much more about it because one of our speakers obviously will address that issue, uh, but we see them trending as slightly higher from where we are right now. Uh, as far as gold is concerned, because we are a European bank, so we always talk about gold, um, we think that gold has turned the corner. And actually, if you look at a long-term chart of gold, um, if we break out over around 1350, 1360, um, gold could, could, uh, could rally substantially above those levels right now. So what we're seeing now in terms of uncertainty and angst is obviously helping gold. Um, inflation typically should help gold. Obviously, that won't, that won't, be, that won't be a tailwind, but uh, we think that gold should have a, definitely a place in the portfolio um, as a hedge against risk, um, and it, is, it, it does behave differently than, than conventional assets as well. Um, joking at the longer term, um, so I threw this chart, it's in the presentation if you want it. We think we've just come out of a secular bar market which, uh, which finished in 2013. Where the, the market we're in right now is the first leg of the upcoming secular bull market. And that secular bull market will be composed of a whole bunch of different themes. Um, we, um, we formulate sometimes our recommendations with clients into around some of these themes. The main themes are population growth, aging, and urbanization, and around those themes are a whole bunch of other themes, including technology, health, um, and, and other issues. Uh, the advent of 5G is gonna be a big event. You think of 5G in terms of its capability is about 100 times more capable than 4G. It's gonna open up all sorts of opportunities as far as technology, automation, robotics, and things of that nature. So even if we can go, uh, from time to time, we go into some cyclical pullbacks, these themes will be the themes that you have to look at going over the longer term as we move into this secular bear market. It also embraces a whole notion of sustainability as well. Environmental um, sustainability and governance uh, become key elements in that strategy over the longer term as well. So I'll stop it there and um, hopefully I haven't gone too much over my time. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Yes, great. <laughs> Thanks, Pierre. Our next guest at Gluskin Chef and Associates provides a top-down perspective to the firm's investment process and asset mix committee. He has received both a Bachelor of Arts and Master's of Arts degree in economics from the University of Toronto. Prior to joining Gluskin Chef, he was chief North American economist at the Bank of America 
Merrill Lynch in New York for seven years, during which he was consistently ranked in the Institutional Investor All-Star Analyst rankings. Prior thereto, he was Chief Economist and Strategist for Merrill Lynch Canada, based out of Toronto. He was the only economist recognized for his accurate economic projections in Fortune magazine's, quote, Best and Worst of Wall Street 2011, and was ranked most accurate forecaster for 2011 by MSNBC. Some people call him the perma-bear, and I just had occasion to ask him whether he thought that was, was accurate, and he said, well, I missed the first rally, but I caught the, sec the, the, the half of the second rally, so therefore I don't think it's accurate. So, so I guess we'll just have to watch today to see whether uh, you, you lead everyone into the cave or out of the cave today, and we'll, we'll learn something from that. He is also the author of Breakfast with Dave, a daily distillation of his economic and financial market insights. Please put your hands together for Gluskin Chef and Associates Incorporated's chief economist and strategist, David Rosenberg. Well, to set the record straight, Barry S. Permano, but uh, I do want to say, actually, I want to commend uh, Pierre uh, during his presentation because you didn't mention Donald J. Trump once, uh, and I think the past, the past two years, that, that's all we talked about. Uh, so I'm going to one-up you on that. I'm going to just mention Donald J. Trump just once, if that's okay. Uh, and, you know, he was interviewed recently, and he, he was asked, what does the J stand for in Donald J. Trump? And he said, genius. So... <laughs> Nothing I say going forward is going to be very funny. Because <laughs> this, is, this is going to be, uh, you know, I don't want to call it, I don't believe in labels, bull or bear, uh, but this is going to be, in the next 15 minutes, uh, an exercise in just giving you uh, a reality check. Uh, and uh, I actually firmly believe you can invest around the Chinese zodiac, right? I mean, if you remember last year, who was here last year? Uh, the, the title of the presentation was uh, The Year of the Dog. And the little quip was, uh, will the dog bark or will the dog bite? And I was talking about Jay Powell. And Jay Powell barked, and then he bit, and now he's whimpering. Uh, but this year is actually the year of the pig. Uh, and the quip is that uh, there ain't no lipstick uh, that can be applied this year. <laughs> so I like to start off the year by going through my former mentors and Bob Farrell is at the top of the list. Uh, show of hands, who knows who Bob Farrell is? This table, you can't do that. Uh, just a few hands. Bob, Bob Farrell was the chief technical strategist for Merrill Lynch for like 50 years. He was quoted in Barron's all the time. Uh, and this is gonna sound a little preachy, but if you get anything on what I say today, what I'd recommend is just Google Bob Farrell's 10 market rules to remember, okay? Just do that, you can do it now, I'm not gonna be offended, or you can do it when you get back to the office, because I'll tell you that no matter who manages your money, or if you manage your money yourself, if you don't know about Bob Farrell's 10 market rules to remember, which is the 10 commandments for investing, there's really not a snowball's chance in hell you could have been as effective as you would have been if you knew about his 10 market rules. And in fact, the, the greatest pride I have when I walk up and down uh, the halls over at 
Gluska and Schaff is when I see the young analysts have Bob Farrell's 10 marker rules pasted on their Bluebook terminals. In any event, I don't have the time to go through the 10 marker rules. I've always adhered by them. Our firm does. But I want to go to that inflection point. And it may well be the case that we're in some sort of long-term secular bull market, but you know, we're here every year. So we're going to take it year by year, not five or 10 years, if that's OK. Bob Farrell, at that inflection point during the tech wreck, uh, in his venerable theme and profile investing publication, said, and I always bring this out when we are at an inflection point in the market and business cycle. What does he say? In the early stages of a new secular paradigm, most are conditioned to hear only the short-term noise they've been conditioned to respond to by the prior existing secular condition. In a shift of secular or long-term significance, the markets will be adapting to a new set of rules, while most market participants will be still playing by the old rules. So when people were saying to me, what do I do? In the past year and today, I've been saying, don't play by the old rules. You've got to play by the new rules. Things are changing, and changing for valid reasons. Now, the other mentor that I had in my life was a fellow named Don Cox. Show of hands. People, okay, well, that's significant. Don was a, and continues to be, although he's retired a mentor. When I was a young pup and I started in this business in the mid-1980s, he said, you know, he said, um, you're the economist and you're the strategist, so you're a little schizophrenic. The economist has to call the economy, but the strategist has to always decide how much of the good news or bad news is priced into financial assets. And he says, the one thing you always want to pay attention to is the front cover effect. The front cover, when some piece of news makes it to the front page of the newspaper, it's fully priced in and then some. You want to fade that story. You always want to be focused on what is the page B16 story on the way to page A1. When it makes it to page A1, time to sell. Actually, the first thing Don gave me was he gave me a copy of the Business Week, the famous Business Week front cover in 1979. Do you know what I'm talking about? What was it called? The Death of Equities. To only go on a real secular bull market for 20 years. That was a great contrarian. And so what happened in October 2017, literally months before what I consider to be the first fundamental peak in the stock market in the S&P 500, which was January the 26th of last year, the Economist magazine runs with the bull market and everything. And that was, for me, an aha moment, that basically everything was priced in. And we know it was the bull market and everything. I mean, last year, everything rallied, except for cash. Everything rallied, even asset classes that were inversely correlated. And I talked about it last year. And actually, the one call I made last year that I remember, as I said, and I had this chart of everything from Bitcoin to bonds to emerging markets to high yield, and I said, this is a one-in-century event, and enjoy it, because it's not going to last, and it didn't. So the chart on the left, as you can see, well, that was 2017. Every stock market was up globally. That was the year of the rooster. I told you you can invest around the Chinese zodiac. The year of the rooster, everybody was crowing. Then we had the year of the dog, and tell me that wasn't a year of a dog. Practically every market was down and downsize. And even though the S&P 500 was the last one to join the club, the problems in emerging markets in China were starting at the beginning of the year. So I was listening to Pierre, and it was making me think that you know we, we have to focus on valuations. We have to focus on fundamentals. But I've always found it useful to take a very eclectic approach towards the stock market. Because uh, it's a stew. There's several things that we have to pay attention to. And it's not just valuations. It's not just fundamentals. It's fund flows. It's sentiment. It's market positioning. 
And I started in this business on October 19th, 1987. You remember that date? 23% collapse, that's why, okay, that's why the perma bear comes from. And you started on October 19th, 87. But what if I told you that earnings year over year, that in a, the fourth quarter of 87 was up 50%. Uh, what if I told you the unemployment rate had come down to cycle lows? GDP growth wasn't two or three or four, it was 6%. Because the real key you know, Larry Kudlow, who we'll talk about later, famously says, earnings are the mother's milk of the market, fine. But liquidity, liquidity is the oxygen tent for the market. And so we have to pay attention to liquidity and something else. And people think this is voodoo, but we have to pay attention to the technical picture as well. I'm not a technical strategist, but I know how to read charts. And you know, Mark Twain was, was right when he said, you know, that there's lies, damn lies in statistics. Right? Like, you know, like economists, you know this, right? Economists make up 73.38468% of all the facts they spew out right on the spot, just to let you know that. <laughs> Charts don't lie. Simple as that. So look at the chart on the left, 2017, and look at the chart last year and tell me which is the old paradigm and which is the new paradigm. Right? But look at the chart, the double peak. The first peak was January the 26th. That was, historians will say, that was the fundamental peak, although the price peak was September the 20th on lower volume and weaker breadth. Look at the chart. Double peak, a failed retest of the old high, littered with intense volatility. And then we can take this back. 2000, 2007, well, there's last year again. And I could take it back, 1960, 1980, look, I've only got 15 minutes, and I could take this back to 1900. But you see what I'm saying? I was saying not only about don't play by the old rules, but I was also saying that maybe for people in my position with the crystal ball, maybe this is one of those times when I have to say, I'm going to play the role of the student. And I will let Mr. Market play the role of the teacher because the markets are giving us a tremendous amount of information. Tremendous amount of information. Sit back, don't hyperventilate, just sit back and assess what's going on here. Double peaks, sprinkled with volatility of what we saw historically has always and everywhere been the hallmark of a transition from a long bull market, which we've had, to a bear market, which is just starting. Now, I talked about the root cause, is about liquidity. And what is the root cause of liquidity are the central banks. And the most important central bank in the world is still, it's not the ECB, despite Super Mario Draghi, who's on his way out anyways. It's not the PBOC, it's not the Bank of Japan, it's certainly not Stephen Polos, it's the Fed. And what's interesting is that as I was standing here last year in January, my good friend Greg Epp at the Wall Street Journal pens this article where he talked about what will the ultimate economic consequences be. Eventually the boost from reduced tax and regulations will peter out, which it's had, that's yesterday's story. The most important determinant is monetary policy. Full stop. That is the liquidity story. That is the most important story right now. It's more important actually than what's happening on the trade side, which I don't see be completely resolved because the situation between the US and China is much broader geopolitical than just soybeans and automobiles. And around the same time, the Wall Street Journal comes up with this editorial and says, keep in mind that we've never lived through a monetary policy reversal like the one that is coming. 
And I thought, okay, have they been there? Because I agreed with it at the time. So look at what's happening. And there's lags between this chart and everything else in the world. This is one month paper, old paradigm, new paradigm. The era of cheap money ended with Jay Powell, that dog. And so you're taking a look here, we've had a monumental increase in short-term interest rates. And I agree that it's over, but it's too late. And as Pierre mentioned, we're now rerunning that experiment of QE. If QE works so well on the upside in the bull market, providing all that liquidity, quantitative tightening has to be doing the opposite because you can't have it both ways. So the St. Louis Fed has something called, if you go on their website, the shadow Fed funds rate, which tax on not just the normal funds rate that we've all looked at our entire professional lives, but tax on the balance sheet impact. So what I've done here is done a three-year change in terms of what the balance sheet has done, which is now shrinking, and when you measure this, the Fed has de facto already raised rates 300 basis points this cycle. That has almost invariably generated a recession. You could see the exception in the mid-1990s. Why? Because in 1995, Netscape went public and ushered in a whole structural shift in the global aggregate supply curve that gave us an extra five years of growth. Now, I frankly don't think that the cycle of iPhones and weed is gonna do quite the same thing. But historically, a 300 basis point increase by the Fed has generated either a significant slowdown or an outright contraction, but there are lags. I will say this, I think Stephen Polos made a mistake raising rates three times this year. And I was saying before the December 19th FOMC meeting, I was there thinking, because at that point, there's only 30% chance in the markets on December 19th they were going to raise rates. I was there thinking, and I wrote about it on my daily, I think they should take a pass. Now, maybe because Trump tweeted that morning, uh, Powell felt I'm painted in a corner. But we're living through history. We have never, ever seen the Fed, even with Volcker, raise rates into that maelstrom. Stock market down 20%, the cyclicals down even more, oil down 40%, steel down 20 copper down 30 They've never raised any raised rates. I actually think the last two, history will show the September and December rate hikes by the Fed were a mistake. And actually, I think both central banks, the Fed and the Bank Canada, this is a case where your assumptions drive your conclusions. They somehow believe that the neutral overnight rate or policy rate is, is say, two and a half, two and three quarters percent. I think it's actually much closer to one and a half to two percent. History will show, in my opinion, that the central banks yet again over-tightened. And that is going to generate a completely different economic landscape this year that the markets have only recently started to price in. And it's on a straight line, right? We had a nice little bounce in the stock market in January, perfectly appropriate in the context of the worst performance since December 1931. It's not a depression, okay? The market got way oversold. But don't be mistaken about what the economic landscape is going to look like because there are lags between what the central banks do in time A and then the peak impact it has in the economy on STUV. There's lags involved. Let's take a look at this cycle. Look where we are. We're 115 months into this economic cycle. A normal cycle back to the Civil War is 40 months, but look, you know, 30% of the population doesn't live on the farm anymore. Take it back to, say, uh, you know, the post-World War II experience. A, in average, or, or the norm, that we call it the norm because it's normal. What's a normal expansion? Normal expansion is 60 months since 1948. This is already rivaling the internet expansion of the 1990s. So it's getting long in the tooth, and one of my favorite late cycle indicators is the output gap. 
which is this economic energy term of the amount of spare capacity there is in the economy, in the product market and the labor market combined together. Well, they're getting overly technical. When you're above zero, you're in excess demand. Below zero, you're in excess supply. And this is what the Fed and the Bank Canada has been responding to. This is really just if I overlay this and inverted it with the unemployment rate, it would be basically the same chart. I think by this time next year, that chart's back below zero, and we're talking about deflation again. But this is where we have been, and that's what the central banks have responded to. So looking at a whole bunch of different aggregates, including the output gap, we run this model in-house. We look at a range of different macro market capacity variables, and we look at how the contours are behaving in relation to previous cycles. And I brought this last year, if you remember. And I think last year, it was basically over 80% of the way through the cycle. And I was saying last year, we're at the seventh inning stretch. Start investing with late cycle in mind. And I gave you folks a whole bunch of different strategies. But we're now more than 90% through the cycle based on our work, which means in baseball parlance that we are top of the ninth with one out. One of my favorite, of course, is the yield curve. Uh, people ask me all the time, if you're alone on a desert island, and a lot of people wish I was, uh, <laughs> what would be my, my, my top metric? And it would be the yield curve, always maligned. Economists always find a way to explain why we shouldn't pay attention to it. You know, the, the Fed, out of the 12 district banks, the one that does put out the best research is the San Fran Fed. Uh, and last year, they came to the conclusion in a report uh, where they said that the power of the term spread, which is central bank lingo for the yield curve, to predict economic slowdowns appears intact. And indeed, I agree with that. Now, this is again about a situation where there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. So, you know, Pierre had his yield curve, and I have my yield curve. Because this yield curve actually leads all the other yield curves. And the two-year, five-year yield curve has gone negative. And this is when the bond market is telling the Fed, uncle, you've gone too far. When you get a situation where midterm rates go below front end rates, take a look at the chart and you'll see that's always been a precursor for an economic recession, except back in the late 1990s around the Asian crisis. But 80% of the time, this has worked. Not just that, but let's take a look at history. Let's put our historian hat on. The Fed has already tightened policy aggressively. I showed you that with the balance sheet, 300 basis points. There are segments of the yield curve that are inverted. That's a yellow flag. But look at all the historical examples of the Fed raising interest rates, the interest rate cycle. Every interest rate cycle, well, there's been 13 of them, 10 landed the economy in recession. And three landed the economy in a soft landing. And a soft landing is slower growth. And a recession is actually a haircut in GDP. So I would say yet again, will we get a soft landing? Mid-60s, mid-80s, mid-90s, the Fed got it just right. But you see, they didn't over-tighten in those cycles. And at the same time, we were early cycle. We were not in year 10. There was a longer runway for growth. I think this is going to be a lot more complicated. And the New York Fed. Now, I said that the San Fran Fed puts out the best research, but the only Fed district bank that actually produces recession probabilities is the New York Fed. And their odds have gone up to a 10-year high. Now you'll see it's at 16%. Oh, what's there to worry about? Look, this chart never goes to 100. And in fact, by the time it goes to 40, it's already too late. So anyway, the important thing in this business is direction. Whether or not you agree with my premise about a recession starting this year, the risks are rising. And if you're managing money, it's all about 
probabilistic determination. So it's about weighing the probabilities. Those odds are going up. Now actually, my conviction level is actually not even 80%, it's more like 100% because of this particular chart, which is Cuddles Cudlow. You know, Larry Cudlow actually said in December of 07, there ain't no recession, that's the month that it started. And what did he say last Friday? There's no recession in sight. So I told uh, my two guys that work for me, I said, I think I gotta include that chart for the presentation I'm gonna give today. And then take a look at the, and, and then take a look at the Fed chairman from the past. These are the most brilliant people in the world. You know, Jay Powell in September, there's no reason to think that the probability of recession in the next year or two is at all elevated. Now, I don't want to be rude and call him dude, but I'll say, hey, Jay, like, you do know that your own New York Fed shows recession odds are at a 10-year high. So, like, what are you talking about? And then we got Bernanke in January of 08, the Federal Reserve is not currently forecasting a recession. Can you believe that? January of 08, it already started the month before. Okay, good. <laughs> and then you got Alan Greenspan, we are observing an inventory readjustment process in January of 01. So he did not see it for what it was, which was actually not an inventory cycle. It was a detonation of the technology capital stock. Now look, at, I am not into really throwing stones at glass houses. I've made my own share of bad calls. But these people have an awesome responsibility and you can see how it is that they often make critical mistakes. Bottom line is that historically, on the eve of the recession, even the Fed staff doesn't see the recession starting, and which is absolutely remarkable. The best economists in the world. And very recently, the other Rosie, Eric Rosengren, who's head of the Boston Fed, said that the record of policymakers' ability to engineer a growth recession that na nicely lands the economy at full employment without morphing into a full-blown recession is not comforting. And I think, you know what, I tip my hat that he actually comes out with the raw honesty. I think a soft landing is a low-odds event. So let's say that I'm right, 10 years into the cycle, and I realize that no cycle dies of old age, they get killed by the Fed. And uh, I think the same's gonna happen this time. I think we're just reliving history. It's not the first time that we've had a recession or a bear market, and we know how to live through them. But here's what it looks like. Before the recession happens, the market prices it in. The S&P is down 10% before the recession begins because the market's a forward-looking indicator. So the market prices it in, the market's down 10%. What are we down right now? 10%. I mean, we bounced off those September 24th lows. Down 10%, price it in. But then in the recession itself, we're down 20%. And the whole bill market is down 30%. It's not the end of the world. You just have to take an umbrella out and know when to open it up. Uh, during the recession, by the way, historically, bond yields go down an average of 160 basis points for the 10-year Treasury note. I guess you do the math, you'd be thinking, wow, he's calling for zero. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that's an average but normally bond yields go down. And for those that um, like to have a visual, this is what it looks like. The stock market on the left peaks before the recession, which I think happened January, September, goes down, bottoms before the recession ends. And you can see that 10-year treasury note yields also go down in that period, but keep on going down past the recession because we still have an output gap and inflation is still coming down. So what I'm saying is this, you see how things move through the recession, the median returns, the TSX, S&P uh, are down more than 20%. This is a different time frame. This is three months before the recession and six months before the recession, three months before it ends. This is the key right here. Stay away from index investing. Stay away from passive investing. That cycle is over. Commodity prices go down. That's a death knell for the Canadian dollar, which is a great sell right now, 132. Uh, it's basically all about the stuff on the right. Where do you hide? You hide in high quality dividend stocks and you hide in high quality bonds, government and investment grade. 
So actually, you don't have to run all into cash. There are places to hide in a recession that generate some alpha, even as the economy is in setback mode. In other words, as the USA Today says, and you can see I buy the paper more than just for the sports section, time to prepare for the end of the bull market. In other words, for 2019, boring is going to be sexy. Uh, so sex up the portfolio by de-risking. It's not too late. Thanks very much, and Happy New Year, everybody. Thanks for that. And given you've made some comments about Governor Polos, we do have him secured to speak to us in December of 2019. So if we do this event next year, it'll be speaking just a few weeks prior to, uh, prior to you, and you can make some more comments at that time. Anyways, uh, our final guest has enlightened audiences around the world and his unique brand of storytelling. Drawing from over 20,000 hours of research, he is frequently interviewed by the media and is known for the colorful way he decodes complicated modern themes. His research book, My, Electri My Electrician Drives a Porsche, was introduced to audiences by way of a one-of-a-kind journey across America in an all-electric Tesla. He is a graduate of electrical studies from British Columbia Un Institute of Technology, and he is a sought-after expert in the analysis of global energy matrix and, is, and in the study of how technology will impact commodities and emerging markets. Fluent in English, German, Italian, and Croatian, he makes his home in Vancouver. Please welcome investor, author, strategist, Gianni, Gianni Kovacevic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, an economist I am not, but me and my brother were reading encyclopedias in National Geographic while everyone else was playing video games. So I am a hobby historian, and I too am a big fan of Donald Cox. The title of my talk today goes from a 2008 piece from his basic points. And in my view, and what I would like to demonstrate today is that the global energy matrix is at a hinge of history. The most important date in the history of energy is January 10th, 1901. It was the discovery of the world's first true oil gusher in Spindletop, Texas, discovered by a Croatian immigrant, Anton Lucic, Changed his name to Anthony Lucas. But first, we have to go back in time. In 1879, in October, Thomas Edison would invent the electric light bulb, and his patron was John Pierpont Morgan. It took a couple years, but he finally electrified the home of J.P. Morgan, and he invited 400 of the most influential people in New York, and Thomas Edison said, welcome to the electric age. They left, and his father of the House of Morgan said, son, how can you embarrass yourself in front of all these important people? This is a science trick. This is for fairs. How embarrassing. Of course, as we got to the late 1890s, it was important. I can think what John D. Rockefeller thought on that day, and I don't think because kerosene, which is what we were doing with oil, we would refine it, throw the gasoline away, and it was the illuminant and the lubricant of the economy. But they did care. Because all of a sudden, it did supplant oil as the illuminant. We didn't use it for motorization because we were still in the animal age. We were using trains and ships, the steamship. And then this guy discovers the world's first oil gusher. What will we do? Of course, we know it was the internal combustion engine. But something else happened 12 days later, after January 10th. This was on January 22nd, 1901. Queen Victoria passes away. 
ruled the empire for 63 years. She gave birth to nine children, and they called her the grandmother of Europe. They married through all the royal circles, and she would die in the arms of her grandson, the German Kaiser, Wilhelm II. They were cousins. Tsar Nicholas, King George, and Kaiser Wilhelm. By 1910, it was the strongest industrial power in Europe. 66 million people lived in the reunified Germany, 1871, Otto von Bismarck. They had 33 million people in England, and did you know that they generated and consumed more electricity than Italy, France, and England combined? But they didn't colonize the world. They did not have those naval fleets. That was done with other people. There was an assassination in Sarajevo in 1914. I will suggest to you this was the match that lit the fuel. But it was a war of the haves versus the have-nots. Germany, Austro-Hungary, and Ottoman Empire. 100 years goes by, cycle after cycle, and we did not organize this, David, but The Economist magazine, on March 6, 1999, they tell us we're drowning in oil. Oil was trading at about $11 a barrel. But they were using the old rule book, just like you said. They follow the statistics of the OECD, which was a club of a few countries in the West and Japan. But they forgot about them, the emerging markets, and of course, China. In 1980, September 1980, the commodity stocks were 35% of the S&P. And on that day, in 1999, there were 5%. But they forgot about these people. The greatest efflorescence of human progress in the history of mankind. And they went from $1.5 trillion of output today to $13 trillion. Look at the, the impact. 31 times. I was in Beijing in November, and I can assure you, they have spending power. They have an economic footprint like you and I do. So now there's a battle between number one and two the second largest economy in the world, which, in time, they have 1.37 billion people, they will surpass America. And it's not that there's, it's just flexing the, the muscle of their populations. So the analysis, and what these people, they, if they're looking at the old rule book, and I'm here to suggest to you, and I'm going to demonstrate through evidence, through my global travels and my curiosity, but supported by evidence, that you do indeed have to look at a new rule book, especially if I tell you that we are at a hinge of history in the way global energy is procured and delivered to society. Everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face. Iron Mike Tyson. The experts in oil tell us, I talk about the big oil economists and the IEA and people like that, that the growth in oil will still grow. The, the argument now is when will we have decline? Is it 2040, 2035? But if you start looking at a hyper Adoption. When you layer in innovation, technology, fuel switching, you have a delta of 40 million barrel a day oil. Now, someone's going to be wrong. I don't know what happens in the next 5, 10, 20 years, but what I will suggest to you that there comes a time sooner than 2030 that it's no longer a growth business, the demand of it, the CAGR growth rate and demand. This country embellishes those places that export oil. Of course, Saudi Arabia, the most important. But that's not the focus here. I'm an investor. You need to think of the countries that aren't present here. And they are 
in fact, some of the economic superpowers of the world. They speak of Japan, China, growing India, Germany, Italy, Israel, Croatia, Switzerland. The point I'm trying to illustrate is that these people have to choose option A, which is the way they've done it for 120 years, or if you haven't traveled, if you get your passport and put a few stamps in it, you'll realize that there is change. It's happening in real time, and there's many incentives for that. This is London. Sadiq Khan is the mayor, and he's put many initiatives with respect to pollution. This is the primary reason. The collateral benefit is going to support us in climate change. But you see it. It's not just a China problem or an emerging markets problem. This is pervasive throughout society. How do I explain this to people? And I've had a hard time because not everyone is a petroleum engineer. Not everyone has driven an electric car across America. And not everyone appreciates the science of energy because it's not their industry. But imagine our world without the magnificence of electricity because almost everything you buy comes with an elect electrical cord stuck at the back of it. magic of electricity, energy without the use of fossil fuels is electrification, and that demands copper. Most people don't know in the energy trade that a final energy usage today, 19, 19%, is electricity. That number is going to climb in the next 30 or 40 years to about 50%. You do not need to get out a pencil and paper to figure out the input. The great enabler of this electrification is metals and mining, and that will be led by copper, and it'll be augmented by things like aluminum, and lithium, and cobalt, and vanadium. And we as a country, our GDP is $1.8 trillion, and about 10% of that is reliant on energy, oil and gas, and electricity. We are, in some capacity, positioned to offset these changes. When you look at these things, and as you drive by them, I want you to look at the average electric car, electric bus, because when this final energy becomes electrified, or increasingly so, and even if I'm wrong by a power of magnitude, in the end, everything does become electrified. Offshore wind takes 10 times more copper for each one megawatt. So go do a little research report and find out how many gigawatts of offshore wind they're building around the world. Electric buses, electric cars, electric everything. So let's look at the two commodities. If I take a cubic kilometer of shale formation, we have technology which has enabled us to, with less effort, get more hydrocarbons out. I'm going to give you the state of the nation in my last three minutes of what's going on in the world of copper mining. Kagger growth rate since 1900 has been 3%. I don't lose any sleep at night that the Kagger growth rate of copper is going to be 
Maybe better than that, maybe five. We have underinvested in copper mining on a global scale. I've been telling people that oil and copper will decouple price, of course, but also when we look at it, what's the CAGR growth rate of these things? Here's a 20-year chart of copper and oil. 99.0% of the time, copper follows oil. That's decoupled. You can see it there. On that same day in 2000, before the China super cycle, and you can see the dips, but now, from an engineering perspective, that ton of low-grade copper ore in the future has to be worth $40. That tells us, as engineers, the copper price will surpass its old all-time high, and it ends up somewhere in that orange box. Otherwise, you're not getting any more copper. It's not the will. You've got lots of that in Lima and Santiago. It's the money. The money, it's not economic. We have not had a horizontal fracking renaissance in copper mining. Ask anyone. So when you tell people, my friends in the oil and gas business, the world's oil supply comes from 4,700,000 individual wells. I tell them, did you know that 50% of primary copper comes from 25 mines? That's it. If you think we relied on Middle East oil, 20% of our oil supply comes from those countries. From two, Peru and Chile, comes 45% of primary copper. Wait till they start talking about that on page one of the newspapers. So I just happen to know the people that produce copper, and if I get together with seven or eight CEOs, they control it. Cobra Panama will be commissioned this year. We do not have one major copper mine that will be commissioned until 2022. Under investment. This is, an, this is something that we as Canadians understand. I'm sure many people here participated in the 06-07 cycle and maybe the one to 2011. But copper has never left the long-term cyclical bull market, which is going to last another 10 years, maybe 20 years. Get the technicians to look at that. In 2010, the 15 largest producers, the grade was 1.2%. Now it's lower than 0.7 and falling. So once again, if you take a cubic kilometer of that rock, for more effort, your pay is far lower. The future of copper mining only gets worse. The grade has fallen in half, as I've already alluded to. And we had the, the benefit of the hangover. After Pinochet reinstated the market economy, we had truly the golden era, the golden era of, of exploration. And now, we, because the copper price went higher, we had the benefit of putting that into production. Now comes the hangover. The future, the next 50 projects are predominantly below half a percent copper. There are many jurisdictions that have 100 years of oil reserves, and they're wondering now, it's not like a Mad Max movie where the last barrel of oil sells for a million dollars. The question is, we will donate that barrel of oil and we will make an enhanced product. Plastic, petrochemicals, and what have you. We have 20 years of reserves going into a four and five year CAGR growth rate in copper. It's not a reserve at this price. So people think the price is gonna go higher, it'll be the same cycle. We and my friends, spent $100 billion looking for more copper in the China super cycle. See the blue bars? Note to my energy friends, we didn't find a lot. Low grade, 
high elevation, no water, countries that don't understand copper mining, no work culture. You got to fly the crew in and out. Just because the copper price goes higher, it does not necessarily mean that that's going to change. So I am a contrarian, and like the famous Ben Graham, I buy from pessimists and I aim to sell to optimists. So that is what I do, and that's what Copper Bank does. We have acquired and we are acquiring high value copper exploration projects in jurisdictions where our children can go work, and we're paying two, three, four cents on the dollar of the money that's already been spent. And we look to sell those to optimists in what I believe is one of the great investments of what should be starting this year in this hinge of history, but certainly through the 2020s. And to enlighten your children to appreciate the magnificence of electrification, you're welcome to buy 10 or 20 copies of my book for next Christmas. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. And I wish you a very prosperous 2019. Thanks, Thank you. Now we invite uh, Richard Carlson, from the uh, CSE to give a quick thank you. Yes, apparently a very quick thank you, uh, Kent. Uh, it's indeed uh, one of my favorite lunches of the entire year uh, to see the passion, the intelligence, and the clash of ideas that are represented by the markets. And, and frankly, that is the healthiest uh, thing that we see all year. You know, really smart people with different ideas about how things are going to, uh, going to play out. Um, and because I'm a nice guy, I won't remind Mr. Rosenberg about his Japan call last year. Um, in any event, we are deeply indebted uh, to Pierre, David, and Johnny uh, for their views. I hope you learned something today that you can take back to the office and put to work, um, even if in Johnny's case it may be 10 or 15 years before uh, anything actually happens. But you did read it here on page 16 before it does get to the uh, front page of the news. Thank you very much, everybody. We're so grateful that you're supporting the Empire Club. And on behalf of the Empire Club uh, Board of Directors, we are so grateful that you joined us here today. Thank you again. Thanks, Richard. Thanks again to our sponsors. One quick announcement. We have a number of great events in January, including Kyle Dubas and Bobby Webster, GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs and GM of the Raptors, talking about big data. We just found out uh, just yesterday that Elliot Friedman from Sportsnet is going to moderate it, so it's going to be a great event. There's not too many tables left, maybe five or six, so uh, get your tables now. And thank you very much for coming today. Meeting adjourned. <laughs>